Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. Welcome to our webinar, Is the Digital Asset Custody Industry Ready to Grow Up? When we last visited the topic of digital asset custody almost exactly a year ago, blockchain-based assets were still discussed mainly in terms of who exactly would be disintermediated. Our then somewhat unfashionable theory was that the humble business of custody could probably do more to ignite the security token markets in particular than any other single form of service provision. Now, 12 months on, security tokens have still not taken off. Indeed, in terms of volume, in terms of value, NFTs and DeFi notwithstanding, digital assets as a whole are basically still cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and Ether in particular. But I think a lot more people, including importantly the venture capitalists who are now putting money into blockchain-based custody services, seem to agree with our supposition that safe custody is a crucial ingredient in the expansion of the industry beyond cryptocurrencies. Why? Well, most obviously because cryptocurrencies are still being stolen regularly and on a large scale which casts a blight not just on cryptocurrencies, but on the prospects of tokenization as a whole. Secondly, it is still not easy to move cryptocurrencies from one blockchain protocol to another. Again, that's something with the traditional infrastructure in the securities industry of custodian banks and central securities depositories existed to facilitate, if not always with complete success, particularly across national borders, but it is what it existed to do. Thirdly, and above all, there is now a near universal recognition that the future of the token industry lies with institutional money, and institutional money will not come at scale without adequate custody arrangements. So today we're going to talk about the insecurity of cryptocurrencies, their impact on the prospects for tokenization, why so much venture capital money is going into digital asset custody now, what traditional custody service providers are doing and should do about it, and how new the new value-added custody services actually are. To help us do that, we're joined by uh, Massimo Buti, the Product and Business Development Director at SDX, the digital exchange and CSD owned by the Swiss Stock Exchange. Johan uh, Bornman is the product lead for MetaMask Institutional, the part of Consensus that provides an institutional quality digital wallet, which can also free its users to interact with DeFi apps. Sven Werner is Head of Digital Custody and Payments at State Street Digital, the division of the Global Custodian Bank that covers cryptocurrencies, central bank digital currencies, and tokenization. Dale Quantz is Chief Technology Officer at PolySign, builders of the Standard Custody and Trust Company, an institutional-grade custody, escrow, and settlement platform for digital assets. Neil Fillery is co-founder at Shuttle Holdings, a private investment office focused on digital assets, and also co-founder of Digital Asset Custody Services, an institutional digital asset custodian. As always, in addition to our panelists, we have you, our audience. We want your questions, we want your comments, so please send them and keep sending them throughout this uh, webinar using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the Zoom screen. I will not be saving up your questions and comments to the end, but I'm going to address them as we go along, so you can be, if you choose to be, an integral part of this discussion right from the start. And I think all six of us will be very disappointed if you don't take that opportunity. Well, I'd like to kick our discussion off by asking Johan the obvious question. Scams, thefts, hacks, they've been a recurrent feature of the cryptocurrency market since hackers made off with $500 million of Bitcoins from Mt. Gox back in 2014. Chainalysis tells us that thieves stole $3.2 billion of cryptocurrency last year and already stolen another $1.3 billion this year. Most of it, interestingly, no longer from the original villains, the exchanges, 
but from DeFi protocols. 97%, says Chainalysis, of thefts have come from DeFi protocols in the first quarter of this year, against just 30% of them back in 2020. Since Mt. Gox, there have been no less than 527 cryptocurrency thefts. That's an average of 66 a year. And the problem seems to be getting worse, not better. So my question to you, Johan, is what's going on in DeFi in particular? Is it still the loss of private keys? Is it the vulnerability of code? Is it the breakdown of security processes inside these firms? Is it, as it used to be in the exchanges, insider jobs? Is it price manipulation? The bridges uh, seem to have emerged as a vulnerability of late. So what's going on uh, and how can it be fixed? After all, auditing the code doesn't seem to have worked. Uh, should we be thinking about better customer due diligence? Should, in fact, the industry be embracing KYC, AML, CFT and sanction screening checks to make sure that bad actors don't get involved with these protocols? Doesn't work very well in the traditional industry, but uh, might help a bit here. So is there a particular problem with, with DeFi? Uh, what's going on? The code is open source, obviously, which means any anybody who knows what they're doing can, can fiddle about with it. Um, and the police don't seem to be very good at catching criminals. So, Johan, what's going on in DeFi and what can we... What can we do about it? Thank you, Dominic. Thank you to all. It's a pleasure to be on the panel. Um, I think you've referenced some astounding numbers, and I think they can be very intimidating, uh, sort of running through the hacks of the last several years. I think it's very important to note that obviously hacks are very serious. Um, you know, you have real money at stake. You have real lives at stake. And as we found in the, the recent lunar incidents, obviously, sadly, there were all sorts of loss of life tied to loss of funds. And so as an industry, as product built in the space, we have to take this very seriously. We have to think very deeply about how do we build the products, the infrastructure, the tools, the services to protect users. Um, the important thing to note, though, is that we are very much in a Cambrian explosion. And therefore, we have innovation cycles that are second to none. And in that innovation cycle, you are going to see um, experimentation um, being run, experimentation is failing, and then often with that, as you correctly pointed out, egregious behavior. And you tend to find this in every single innovation cycle that despite the changing technology, human behavior does not change. Um, I am deeply optimistic, though, despite all of that, that you are seeing a range of tools a range of products, a range of services being built to cater to uh, these problems. And I think it starts with uh, you know, a, a giant topic that we're discussing today, which is how can institutions and how can users have the safe storage of their private keys? How is key management done? How does signing happen? How can we manage risk around signing of transactions? Now, on top of that, you're seeing a range of new capabilities being built. Therefore, how do we decode transaction parameters so that users know exactly what are they interacting with? Um, how can we have additional uh, services around ensuring that we notify the users that are actually uh, interacting with the correct smart contract and not a nefarious smart contract? And then lastly, and very importantly, um, making sure that we have um, you know, the, the infrastructure in place that users can, can bridge safely, as you pointed out previously. Now, again, we are very, very, very early in this ecosystem. You know, DeFi is incredibly nascent, especially when compared to the traditional financial system. And so what we already have is the future is already here, as the famous saying goes, it's not evenly distributed. And so what you will see developing really quickly over the, over the next so six to 12 months uh, is sort of the building out of these services to help protect users, to help keep them safe. 
And so I am deeply, deeply, deeply optimistic that through decoding transaction parameters, through AML and KYT uh, tools that exist in the market today, through decentralized identity, this industry can solve the problems that you have pointed to. And so and maybe I'm the optimistic person on this panel, but I really sincerely believe that hacks vulnerabilities will continue to trend lower despite the, the breakneck innovation in the space. Dale, um, you, you've heard what, um, what Johan said. What occurred to me listening to him was that actually the traditional financial services industry actually has a very rapid development cycle as well. You know, ideas come straight out of business school. The next thing you know, they're being turned into financial instruments sold to uh, German retail banks. So the, the, actually what's happening in uh, in in DeFi, for example, isn't that different, you know, from what happened in in, in TradFi, if you like. So that you put finance and computer code together, you get very rapid cycles of of development. But do you share Johan's optimism that actually these problems are soluble, partly because the cycles are so rapid? Yeah, so I think I, I do share his optimism in that sense. But I, I mean, the same problems that traditional finance has, uh, you're going to have in the DeFi model with cryptocurrencies and blockchains, right? There's no there's no silver bullet with this one. It's really a layered defense. And that's going to be embracing the traditional models that have definitely worked in terms of knowing uh, KYC, KYT, and building a further, um, really, professionalism, I'd say, within the context of the cryptocurrency and crypto exchanges, because I think you've seen a lot of technologists and a lot of, of companies spawn up that did not have those deep traditional roots that would allow them to know the patterns and practices that were used to help mitigate some of these attacks uh, that are basically hitting a technology front that are not as common in traditional finance. And so that's important. But I think the answer is as is, is simple as it's always been. You've got to reduce the human touch points eliminate as much of the human element as possible and create as immutable a set of structures that are supporting your assets and protecting your assets as you possibly can. Every time something changes, there is a risk and opportunity for someone to come in and actually insert themselves and uh, essentially hunker down within the actual technology stacks in order to wait for the opportunity to steal assets. Sven, um, like Dale, you are aiming to service institutional money in the, in the first place. And I alluded to some of the fixes which have been tried already. One is to audit the code of these uh, these protocols. Clearly, that isn't terribly effective. Um, we've also seen um, insurance uh, be introduced. And I've often thought of traditional custodies like an insurance policy. Basically, institutional investors are saying, well, I'll appoint State Street Bank or Bank of New York Mellon. And if my assets go missing, they will make me whole. It's like a an insurance policy, possibly one for which they're not really paying the right premium, but it is an insurance policy. What is the, how sophisticated is the discussion you're now having with institutional investors about liability for loss? Um, and how complicated do those discussions get? Johan mentioned, you know, keeping private keys secure, that's not a straightforward task. Um, Dale mentioned, you know, trying to minimize those human touch points. That's not, you know, that's hard as well. Yeah, maybe just, um, I think that's an excellent question and also reminds me you know, in a way of many discussions, in particular we had in Europe around um, AFMD and liability regime. So uh, probably always is a question, what do we mean by insurance policy? As a custodian, I don't think of myself as an insurance policy. What uh, I do think of myself as a, a safe and secure place to, to store these assets. So uh, obviously we put a lot of uh, procedures in place to ensure that. And... Um, 
so the 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 the, the loss of asset that is being considered obviously something that uh, hopefully is a very remote uh, uh, chance of of happening now as you said in the in the crypto industry in particular um it has uh, adopted the idea of ensuring the loss of assets uh, as a as a, as a well, important means uh, for that but i would say this, this this idea that you need to have insurance for crypto custody for me is a, a deeply flawed idea uh, as well as the idea that uh, i hear that quite uh, a bit more i would say from uh, from providers of uh, fintech providers uh, than necessarily from investors which is that what you can ensure, which is uh, so far mostly uh, cold storage, is therefore inherently more secure than, than alternatives. I think both ideas are, have some 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 challenges. We could easily uh, argue, and we hear this uh, from investors as well, that um, uh, a driver for the need of uh, insurance, at least in the, uh, in the way the industry has been operating so far, comes from the fact that these are typically uh, you know, the smaller startups, uh, they don't have the, the financial muscles, muscle and experience uh, to deal with these kind of issues. So I would be surprised if, if you want the, um, that the same dynamics uh, will apply if uh, uh, institutional banks uh, offer these uh, kind of services. In the same way that also I think uh, in terms of the uh, what is an inherently better model uh, for um, private key management or the thought or code about these terms actually have any real meaning uh, I think it also has to be uh, debated. What I find quite interesting, if you want, is the, uh, I mentioned this earlier, um, AFND, some of these issues that we have been grappling with as a traditional securities industry will come back for digital assets. So if you look, for instance, at the, um, the proposal from the EU Commission around the DLT uh, pilot regime, it makes it very clear that in future, a DLT market infrastructure in Europe offering uh, tokenization of securities, uh, equities, fixed income, what have you, it would be subject to a uh, AFMD-like uh, liability regime, like a strict liability for the loss of assets. So we see it's a complete shift, if you want, how you think about uh, the traditional industry where ACSD in that sense uh, has uh, no liability per se. Uh, instead, you regulate the function of that industry. So I think that is I mean, an interesting aspect in terms of how the, the introduction of DLT to either... Uh, financial instruments or in the case of, of crypto changes how we think about loss of assets and what the right uh, regime is but then saying everyone who's offering these services uh, becomes an insurance policy i think would be from my perspective a step too far well i'm interested you brought up the question of ai fmd because that liability was extremely contentious with the mm -hmm. custodian banks at the time not least because a lot of the assets were not actually held by the custodian banks who were being rehypothecated up the wazoo uh, by prime brokerage houses um you don't have that that problem here do you but you you'll have a strict liability but you will at least control the asset whatever we mean by that and we mean by that a not information about it not an entry in a register but actually the asset itself lines of code uh, yeah well that, that, that is the thing um uh, do you actually uh, actually this was an interesting debate also recently in the context of the uh, uh crypto sprint that the fca has undertaken when uh, when you when you think about the if you want the particular crypto the absence of the the product regulation so who is uh, creating that code who is uh, uh, ensuring that uh, if you have smart contract for tokenized assets that the smart contract is actually doing what it's supposed to be doing who is liable for this you have no framework to to control this at the moment and would this be an obligation in future that rests with an issuer or would you <laughs> assume which 
hopefully we're not getting there, where a custodian has to be a gatekeeper to almost assess the, the risk inherent in, in that code before allowing investor to uh, invest in those instruments and con consequently hold them in custody. It, it, it changes a little bit sort of the, in the traditional world, this you have a clear definition, this is a role of a CSD, this is a role of a custodian, this is what an investor does. With DLT, uh, you have to rethink if that very clear delineation of activities still applies, and if so, how it's being enforced, and uh, would the law have to uh, change to actually reinforce this in the future world? So I think uh, I'm going to sort of make a comment off of what Sven had mentioned before, was that the role of the custodian is necessarily to actually decide what assets they decide they're going to custody, and they are looking at, you know, uh, deep sets of information on each of the assets they consider to custody because it does create a risk profile for their customers, right? So having the assets in the case of, of a custodian, having the assets in their custody system and secured yet, yet subject to a contract that might allow those assets to be lost, that's, that's a, a really important factor in terms of considering whether you're going to custody that sort of asset. So I'm not, I'm not saying we go all the way to the liability side, but any good institutional custodian should be looking at the assets and rejecting those that don't have a highly decentralized base, that don't have a set of patterns and practices in terms of their trade profiles that look like they're normative versus having money laundering, other nefarious activities in there. So. I may just respond to this empty, uh, if I may. So I, I, obviously I know about the idea of the coin policies, et cetera, but you have to ask the question. So I'm, uh, uh, at what stage do you then as a custodian become involved in the portfolio decision of, of an investor? Because it's almost saying today, obviously, we, we look at country risk, market risk, CSD infrastructure risk and making determination what, what is a good uh, framework around that and which market we are comfortable. But here it would be almost saying you go, uh, let's say, the UK and saying, I'm happy to custodize BP shares, but I'm not happy to custodize some other FTSE 100 share because of something in the code behind it. Now, this can be very well done, and maybe that is a consequence of the move towards DLT, but it is a quite quite a, a move away from, from the traditional world where that level of, uh, if you want, security by security Scrutiny. decision is mm -hmm. something that a custodian typically wouldn't do. Yeah, but I think that given that the level of transparency that can take place when, when assets are actually managed and issued and available on public DLTs, you have that additional information and we shouldn't be you know, ignoring the information in terms of our decision-making process. That's, that's my point. Mm -hmm. But Sven, how often, as you look back over your career, have, has State Street been able to say to an institutional client, well, you may be investing in that stuff, but I'm afraid we are not able to keep that on your behalf? Uh, that is, uh, uh, no doubt, that would be a, a significant <laughs> point of contention uh, with institutional investors. But uh, I think that the problem is, and this is uh, all due respect to uh, sort of the colleagues from the fintech industry, uh, there's a there's a different dimension how it, a, a, a regulated financial institution like State Street would be looking at because you have on the one hand side custody regulation, but more importantly, you have asset management regulation, FMD, usage, what have you. So these kind of decisions um, have a more complex uh, uh, implication from that perspective about who takes the liability for these decisions and what is the criteria you have to apply to make the decision in the first place. So the crypto industry at the moment is... Um, it's not exposed uh, to these requirements. We need to bring them in line to say uh, in future, uh, when the portfolio manager makes a certain decision, what is within their remit versus the custodian? That's a unresolved issue if you want from a, from a regulatory, perspective, uh, regulatory perspective. Now we're starting to get some questions come in, which I will ask in, a, in just a second. Before I do, perhaps Massimo, you would, you would want to contribute to this discussion about 
the question of liability. After all, at SDX, you built yourselves a whole digital CSD to sit alongside your um, traditional CSD. So you must have been thinking about the, the liability question as well. Well, yes. And uh, we also had to uh, strike a balance between the liabilities that we, uh, as, a, as an FMI provider, are willing to take on board and also the liabilities that we share with the, with the custodians. And uh, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was an interesting, uh, there were some interesting conversations in, in there. I think that we, we reached a position now where we, uh, we are happy that the, the, uh, the CSD, the, the custodian role on our CSD has struck that balance. A lot of it uh, hinges around uh, known processes and processes that we have re-engineered and sometimes reapplied from the world of TradFi, um, uh, whereby a lot of these controls and uh, these, these checks are already embedded, for example, in the uh, format of the membership to the, to the CSD. Um, questions about auditing code, um, it, it, it becomes very much, um, very much of, and very rapidly a contentious, a contentious conversation. So uh, I guess that where we, what we are aiming at uh, going forward is to, is to try to really work uh, and, and, to, and to fulfill our, our role as, a, as an FMI to, to create as much as possible standards that can be used within world, world, world gardens like ours, but also externalized very easily and then bridged between between the two however I, as you pointed out the, the bridges seem to have been the the weakest link uh, in the in in the recent crisis so i think that there'll, there'll be a lot of work uh, um, that we will have to do with members with with uh, with technology providers as well in order to reinforce those bridges because we see them as as key to, to create more liquidity around assets, but also more opportunities to, uh, to, to go to offer custody services to a more diverse set of, uh, of, uh, of assets. And also I think that that will, will aim, will, will go towards creating new roles where, for example, Risk, risk management at CSD level and at, uh, uh, at custody level will look more at portfolio diversification, but also at exogenous, exogenous risk, for instance. So uh, to answer your question, we, are, we, we, are, we reached a happy balance, uh, but uh, is not the final state. And I don't think that as an industry, we will, we will, we will reach that very soon. But one of the key points here is that we, we have readapted some of the TradFi uh, uh, processes and also some of the of the of the thinking behind behind these assets uh, probably for us it's been easy because we are uh, also working with assets that are fairly traditional in a sense in uh, in terms of uh, of asset classes um, but as, as Ven was saying, you know, uh, we, we, we would like to prevent a situation where you are uh, saying as a custodian, a custodian has to say, oh, we are taking uh, on uh, uh, this share uh, on tokenized form, but not this one, because we're not 
comfortable with the uh, with the, the the protocol risk, if you want, connected to that tokenized asset of that particular company. This is, I think, it would be tremendously destructive. And if we can work with the industry as an FMI to solve that and impose not not impose order, but impose a set of rules that we can all happily live with. Um, and uh, and because again, there is no uh, no no silver bullet to, to solve this one. We can't certainly provide uh, uh, an answer in terms of substantially increasing uh, safety of these assets uh, without, without compromising the safety of the, of the CSD. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a balance that needs to be reached in, with, with that in mind as well. But to cut to the chase on that balance, do you are you have you been able in contracts with custodian banks that operate to have accounts, if you like, at your at your CSD specifying who is liable in different situations, or is this something you're going to have to learn with experience? The, well, no, there are. Uh, what we, happens if the CSD fails or falls over or loses the asset? Well, uh, the uh, if uh, if the CSD falls over, we have uh, assets segregated in two types of uh, omnibus accounts, uh, where the banks are required to uh, settle their proprietary position and uh, their clients' positions, and then underneath the client omnibus accounts, uh, we offer uh, account segregation. So there are individual accounts uh, uh, in uh, in uh, with the uh, with the beneficiary owners of the accounts information embedded into um, into the wallets, if you want. Uh, beyond that, uh, as, as I said, is a, is a, I think that this sort of builds a, 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 a layer of security that everyone can understand, is simple. As I said, is very much adapted from TradFi. Um, certainly, as we as we expand our ecosystem and we we start to look at assets that are for example perhaps not native uh, in our uh, in our environment, uh, we will certainly have to go deeper in that and perhaps there will be some uh, levels of uh, technology protection that we need uh, uh, to provide or we will have to ask the custodians to provide. Okay. Yeah, so I- as I said, uh, I agree with Messam on the sense that segregated accounts, you kind of mentioned it, is, is one way of actually mitigating the risk of, of loss uh, should there be any breach. Uh, coming back to this, sort of the asset mix, and, and I, I wanted to clarify my statement in saying that what I meant was an asset type, we need to look at it in terms of to determine whether it's actually securable. In other words, before we were willing to take that on as a custodian. That's that's a different statement than to say, well, based on the patterns and practices, what's going on in the protocol, we don't want to take on that asset. I'm really talking about as a custodian, we're responsible for the security of those assets. So we need to make sure that we have high confidence that we can secure them and allow them to trade the instruments as necessary. But but uh, that's that's the differentiating line for me, not whether or not we think this is an asset we, we want to custody because of other outside factors. This is just really about security. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Neil, you've been very, very patient. Um, can I throw at you a, a question from Trevor Hunt here, who says, um, climate-friendly digital assets, um, is this an oxymoron? I assume he's referring here to the fact that uh, digital assets consume a lot of a lot of electricity. It's slightly off our topic here, but I wonder if as an, as an investor, you come across this as a barrier 
to to entry? Um, I don't necessarily think so. I think he might he or she might be pointing towards the fact that there are um, a whole bunch of alternative energy uses for the mining of, of, of cryptocurrencies. Perhaps that's the climate orientated question. I don't I'm not sure. But we've certainly seen, you know, that come to fruition because of the computational power that's required to mine you know, some of these assets, um, of course. Um, you know things like hydropower and some of these other other mechanisms are becoming. You know, blue power is becoming more and more of a influential uh, energy source to power the mining equipment that's required. These you know these these very power intensive uh, ASICs miners, for example, is and we've had a lot of experience in 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 buying and selling miners from the from the beginning uh, of time when this when this space came about. But just going back to the, the custody elements, I think just a couple of points. Um, for us, when we first started in in this business, um, you know, back in 2014 was when we really hit the market. Um, one of the key things for us was the core infrastructure layer of custody and digital identity. So having a combined self-sovereign digital identity layer and a secure custody solution was absolutely paramount to get ready for uh, the institutions and the regulated world. So we spent a lot of time in actually there's always this conundrum with business owners and institutions is, is you know, this high availability of the asset class versus, um, you know, how secure you need it to be. Um, we took the, the stance that um, if we're managing money or we're advising investors um, in a regulated environment, um, you know, we can, you can lose money, markets go up and down, but you can't lose the private keys, right? You can't go to an investor and say, you know, holy crap, we've just lost the private keys of your, of your assets. So we took a very strong view that, the core infrastructure to digital assets had to come from a, um, a custody solution that didn't have, and this was mentioned earlier on the panel, um, you know, eliminate single points of failure. Um, you know, we want the highest grade hardware to be able to back up our, our, our back end, right? So when, we're, when our assets are in flight, that's one thing. And that's where I think typically the insurance comes in place when assets are in flight, meaning in a hot wallet scenario, right? So um, we looked at cold storage and actually thought that there are issues around that, of course, because you're relying on a party to perhaps go in and unlock a, a vault in, the, in, in Switzerland um, when there's you know, human intervention that might cause a problem. So we went down the route of building a, 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 an end-to-end trusted computing environment that, that, that was a warm wallet-based solution that, that arguably was more secure than cold storage. So I think these, these aspects are very, very important. And that was really sort of dear to our hearts when we started in this, in this business. Do you yeah, think I've, those those different technical solutions like multi-party computation, the hot, cold, warm one, are these actually a source of competitive advantage to anybody anymore? Or is there is there kind of a standard that's sort of emerged where you have to meet this minimum requirement? Well, we, we were doing a form of multi-party computation before the term was defined. I mean, we had a trusted computing environment um, that we built with IBM, which which enabled us to, to have those aspects within our custody solution. And then you know, it was really designed to be built for um, the largest banks and custodians in the world. And that was our approach. You know, we need something that we can scale. We need something that can be, you know, hyper secure from sort of military grade HSMs right the way down to having the ability to be able to service a high frequency hedge fund. Very, very difficult to do, right? Because you need to have the high availability of the asset as well as the secure storage on the private key side. Um, but yeah, that's that's really uh, the I'm looking, I'm looking at my external hard drive here and wondering if it's military grade. It doesn't look it, but... Um, <laughs> Um, yeah. Uh, so just to Neil's point, I think really yeah. quick, the I, th I think it's critically important that we have a zero trust model that is within our custodial organization. Anybody that has the ability to touch or access keys creates a risk. And so that's why, for instance, we've built a, a model that is just a zero trust operational model. No one within our organization has the ability to move assets but the owners themselves. And that's yeah. key. I, 
I couldn't agree more. I mean, putting ownership back into the user for a self-custody is absolutely paramount. And um, I wouldn't trust anyone actually to be touching my private keys for the assets. Um, That's not because I don't trust people at at times. It's just that I don't think that that can be, that single point of failure can be eliminated through technology. And I think that's important when you build an architecture. Um, Maybe Dominic, to your point, you you referenced this, this phrasing of competitive advantage. And I think, um, it's maybe a sort of a strong phrasing because you tend to find different users, particularly institutions, have different needs in terms of key storage. I think sort of the panel seems to be in an agreement around a single point of failure being a, a very important point to consider. But certainly what we find working with, you know, seven partners globally, offering custody tech, uh, qualified custodian, um, you know, MPC, HSM, all these various different flavors that you have referenced, you tend to find that different institutions have different trading strategies, different books, different requirements, different, re- different regulatory oversight, that then drives them to a particular type of key management solution. So again, I think competitive advantage is maybe a strong phrasing. I think the market naturally drives different requirements and therefore you're seeing the adoption and you're seeing the innovation uh, around different key storage solutions. Mm-hmm. While I have your attention, um, uh, Johan, what about retail investors? They seem to have been very comfortable with some pretty cacamamie uh, custody solutions, they don't seem to have paid that much attention to it, which has made them vulnerable to being uh, losing their, their assets. Is, is the reason for that that it's simply too difficult for them to purchase a safe custody solution? Does there need to be easier on-ramps for retail investors in particular in mm. cryptocurrencies and beyond that, eventually in security tokens as well? Yeah, I think it depends on how, we, how are we defining what custody is in this instance. Um, you know, if we're talking about obviously traditional custody services in terms of an entity signing on your behalf or storing those keys, um, I might take your point. Although we have seen innovation, particularly in APAC market around HSM providers providing infrastructure to solve for retail users. Um, your point, though, I think comes back to some of the earlier points referenced by some of the other panelists around this idea that when you're talking about the retail market, you're definitely seeing a more active user uh, stepping more actively into crypto generally and more stepping very actively into DeFi and therefore naturally interacting with a range of different tokens, DeFi protocols, bridges, et cetera. And that by its very nature drives a type of, of uh, need for, for key storage, key management and signing yet again. And so what you've seen is, um, you know, custody tech play a, a quite, a, I think, a profound role uh, in terms of serving, into, uh, excuse me, consumer needs. Uh, you've seen recently, the adoption of MPC technology to roll out for a variety of different uh, large institutions that, that sort of cater to, to consumers, as well as MPC playing a very big role in providing infrastructure and sort of the, the, the crypto rail sitting behind, you know, a lot of B2C fintechs today. And so I do think there is a way, so if you think about custody infrastructure and custody tech serving uh, consumers in a way that can solve for the single point of failure, um, and there's also, also obviously, uh, you know, hardware wallets that I think play a, a very important role in the consumer space. Um, you know, again, it comes down to cost structures, the cost of, of paying for a qualified custodian. Uh, it comes back to previous points around insurance as well. There's a, sort of a, a unit economics that does not make sense for the average consumer. But there are, I think, really important uh, solutions that I've developed in the market today that does give that freedom to the consumer and also provides them with security around signing and storage. Hmm. Now, we had an interesting question from a member of the audience here who says, um, today, sequential process compliance costs are killing us in the securities market. They're very manual. 
there are lots of people, they vary by markets. How can we fix automation evidence this cost and risk processing effectively in a distributed ecosystem for cryptocurrencies and tokenized securities? Now, we've talked about <clears throat> regulation of the cryptocurrency market. There's a kind of supposition now that it's going to happen. It'd be good if it was, because it's casting this blight on the whole um, tokenized side of the industry as well and the DeFi side of the industry. And so regulation is kind of good. And there is a, a convergence of opinion that um, outside the extremes that, that regulation of crypto would be would represent an advance. But here we, we're being asked, actually, we've got lots of regulation in the traditional securities industry. It's killing us. It's incredibly expensive. Uh, it's totally ineffective. And um, actually, we need a whole new a whole new system. So I suppose the question is, um, how quickly can we move to to a tokenized uh, future? Um, Massimo, um, SDX is betting on that happening quite soon. What's your what's your thought process? Well, um, for us, our, our, our bet is based on the fact that uh, Swiss legislation actually has created the uh, the background conditions to uh, to create a market in a regulated market in uh, in uh, in digital assets. So I think that. Uh, uh, um, regulation hopefully will bring uh, mm. more uh, clarity, uh, reduce fragmentation, especially uh, in Europe, um, and uh, there will certainly be efficiency gains and benefits uh, from deriving from that. That's that's for sure. Uh, however, at the moment, uh, so there, there's there's uh, there's still a lot of disagreement even at national levels or uh, uh, how this this regulation should be shaped. Uh, just look at again um, deposits uh, and and custody. Uh, you know, use of, we just mentioned use of uh, private wallets uh, and uh, and uh, and private keys, uh, um, keeping track of of security and asset movements across different uh, what are regulated but still fragmented jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a gigantic puzzle to 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 solve. Our bet is that. Uh, um, the, the Swiss regulation can be a, 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 a good reference point and a good starting point for, mm -hmm. other, for other legislators. Because uh, I think it's been very pragmatic and very uh, um, open to the concept of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, creating markets mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and support services around, uh, uh, around these markets. So uh, I guess that, uh, and, and I don't want to be uh, facile, but uh, again, is a matter of uh, uh, try as much, make an effort to uh, strike a balance between uh, the, the, the trade-off or have adequate prote investor protections and adequate recourse in terms of failures uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, a regulation that uh, becomes, uh, 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 becomes a burden to, to investors without really solving any real pragmatic problems. I think that there, in, in the case of, uh, of DLT, uh, there'll be a lot of technical solutions that could easily uh, um, solve the burden of, uh, uh, of rather hard and heavy uh, regulatory regulatory measures. Mm -hmm. Again, 
I think that the uh, the uh, our uh, bet is that as also the regulators become more comfortable with what we are doing, and uh, uh, let's put it pragmatically, uh, we're we, we're not breaking anything. They will they will probably become more comfortable and being able to be more. Uh, uh, m- m- more also very pragmatic in, in, uh, in adapting the regulation uh, to the purpose of what they're trying to, to, to regulate. So it will require a lot more uh, de- detailed discussions than in TradFi. Uh, and uh, because otherwise you're gonna end up with some sort of very swiping pieces of legislations that blanket entire segments of the value chain. So, uh, I think that here we're going to be, uh, we, we will need to, to, to be a lot more as market practitioners, uh, a lot more uh, uh, active in, in counseling in that respect. And I think that the tech providers, the fintech providers have a lot to contribute. And, and uh, you know, we have, we have a couple in, on this panel. They, they, they are at the forefront of this. And I think that they can really uh, uh, bring bring technology solutions that can can really help us as an FMI operator, but also the the regulators and the legislators to to uh, to um, to uh, to really adapt uh, the, the the playground uh, in a in a way that is is accessible and uh, and and fair for everyone. Now here's a thanks, uh, Massimo. Here's an interesting question: Who are going to be the winners in cryptocurrency? <clears throat> Traditional institutions spin-outs or native digital custodians? And that question interests me because at, um, at Future of Finance, we've been trying to track the number of uh, digital custodians out there. And the figure, it reminds me of the old fund administration industry, which seemed to fragment and, and consolidate at the same time. So there's lots of purchases and deals going on, but also the number seems to be increasing. The last number I saw, there's more than 100 uh, uh, digital asset custodians of, of various kinds out there. So it is a very fragmented ecosystem. <clears throat> now, Neil, uh, I, I, CB Insights claimed that more than a billion dollars of venture capital money had gone into various forms of digital custody in 2020. Mm-hmm. What is the growth that those investors are seeing? It's, it's not in cryptocurrency. Is it in, is it in DeFi or is it in security tokens? What are they really betting on? Um, I think for me, there's a second wave within the security token offering market that's come in. When we looked at this, you know, three years ago, and and it wasn't so vibrant, we thought it was going to take off a lot faster than it did. But I think it's back. I think if you have the ability to look at the real asset market or the more tangible asset market and create, you know, digital representations of those asset classes, that for me is 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 the sort of um, holy grail as any investor is to get access to. Um, other asset classes that you typically wouldn't be able to be bankable or in your portfolio, right? So one of our mission statements is to is to bring uh, more tangible assets, you know, real assets like real estate, artwork, you know, that you name it, the you know anything down sort of music rights and other 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 asset classes. This is something that I think there are trillions of dollars of assets to unlock and to bring into to to client portfolios in the wealth and asset management space, right? So that's that's a big shift that I'm seeing. I'm seeing more and more you know, real asset security backed, asset backed tokens coming to market and to have an infrastructure to be able to support that within a regulated bank account would be actually something that, that we would, we would um, you know, welcome in, in the industry. I think from a venture capital investment standpoint, um, obviously we've seen the likes of Anderson Horowitz and, 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 and such big VC investors plowing billions into this, creating second and third funds that are, 
there's no doubt that VC money is chasing the new sort of blockchain infrastructure projects out there. And, and, and you know, this is a clear trend that we're seeing. Um, in terms of institutions, who's going to be the winners and losers? I think that was a, a touch point. I think it, there is, it's clearly evident that, that the large, um, you know, custodians, the JP Morgan's Bank of New York, Mellon, State Streets, Citibanks, we talked to all these very, very early on. Um, there was, I think it's been a decade of education and people catching up um, to what this could really do. But now I think uh, a lot more, um, many more institutional uh, based uh, corporates and groups have got their arms around it and uh, are starting to put the investment dollars to work to, to really, um, you know, accelerate the growth of, of blockchain infrastructure and in enterprise. Sven, um, State Street could have gone into this crypto custody, if you like, back in 2018, but decided not to proceed at that point. You are now working with Copper to, to develop a service. Uh, I, you know, I asked that question, was Neil referred to a new wave? And there was a wave of, of crypto custody happening back in 2018. And there's a second wave of it, it happening now. Um, what, what, what's your answer to this question from a member of our audience? Um, you're not allowed to say State Street's bound to win. But what do you think the ingredients of a successful digital custody offering are going to be if you look forward <clears throat> four or five years? <laughs> Yeah, I would say, I think maybe part of the confusion comes from this, when, when we say custody, what we mean by this, and I think everyone still has a very different idea, depending on which part of the ecosystem they, they belong to. Uh, when I think about custody, I think about an institutional platform that is integrated with accounting, risk management tools, basically is geared towards the needs of uh, asset managers. And also it deals with the respective licenses from depository licenses in Europe, et cetera. That bundle does not exist today. That is what we are building. Uh, and it will uh, also be subject to, you know, one of the highest uh, security measures when it comes to key management. So it, and this is, uh, if you want, the, uh, the, 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 the issue that um, today <clears throat> we're servicing uh, clients uh, in, uh, uh, as owners, uh, unregulated funds, we have crypto investments, we're providing various kinds of accounting uh, services around that. But taking, if you want, a traditional custody franchise into the regulated asset management industry is something that is subject to regulatory challenges. Take, for instance, usage regulation in Europe. <clears throat> a crypto investment is not an eligible investment for these type of investors. Could argue uh, the lack of an institutional grade custody solution may be one consideration for, for regulators to, to make that uh, decision so far. And so, so that's something that, if you want, that real... Uh, money asset management industry is still watching at the gates and uh, so therefore i think by providing solutions that work for that part of the, the asset management industry it will unlock additional investors to participate and therefore i don't really see sort of the heads on competition between fintech we are all having a role to play and the uh, the corporation that you just mentioned with copper is one example i'm just using technology where it's available and i don't feel you know, uh, the, the competition, I think we, we can be very complimentary on that journey. Well, into our last 15 minutes or so now, I'd, I'd like to perhaps um, talk now a little bit about the, about value-added services, if you like, which is something which has become very familiar from the traditional custody industry down the years. And value-added here means in my, for the purpose of this particular discussion, what's going on in DeFi, uh, the staking, um, the lending, even the prime brokerage services, which are being um, developed there. What is the attitude um and dale this is perhaps a question for you first but i'd be very interested in what johan has to say about this as well what is the position of a a a if you like a conservative institutional custodian supposed to take 
towards this. And, and Massimo, I'm sure, because I know you're developing a, a cryptocurrency um, yield service, if you like, as well. So if you're interested in what you have to say, but Dale, why don't you tell us what, what is the, what's the right view for a custodian like you to take towards what is going on in the DeFi markets? Is this a big income opportunity for your clients or is it something you need to be very wary about? It's, it's definitely a big income opportunity, but like I said, you also have to differentiate between which liquidity pools you're going to be uh, interested in supporting. And that's really about securing the assets again. But I'm gonna go back to, to something that Sven had said, sort of he talked around it as well. There's a whole set of surround sound services that go along with a custodian that have to be a part of the, um, the, the service, the, the front that you're creating for your customers and the set of services for that is key. So for instance, we as an organization just purchased a, a very large crypto custodian fund administrator in order to be able to add those set of services around the just the basic custody. And I think that's what institutions are looking for and looking for a solution like that. Um, and I think those those folks that have a broader set of services that can they make available from, you know, within the confines of traditional regulatory framework are going to be incredibly important. Now, staking, staking is one of those, I would say, perfect yield opportunities. I think there's, there's real value and real security in being able to take assets and stake them. On the DeFi side, there's real value in being able to offer your assets up and move it into this decentralized lending model. You've just got to be concerned with who the partners are. And that really comes down to a couple of things. Diversification of the pool when you're looking at those assets to be able to embrace. And once again, the patterns that are taking place on the pool and its reputation um, and that that comes down to what assets we're being you know we're interested in servicing. We want to service the broadest possible set of assets. We we also need to enter in this realizing that we are beholden to our you know like we're New York a DFS regulated entity and we've got to be able to to defend our positions on what assets we decide to take on as a custodian and what services we offer with that. But I think great opportunity there. But obviously with the opportunity becomes greater risk. So we've got to be even more diligent in our processes, our human elements, and our security models to be able to support it. Mm -hmm. Johan, opportunity means risk. What, what's, what's your advice to digital custodians looking at DeFi? Yeah, so normally we can see, um, and it's maybe an obvious statement, that uh, regulation is directly causal and correlated mm -hmm. with the adoption cycles of Web3 and DeFi generally. And so you have seen the likes of custody tech providers mm -hmm. being able to step into the market more actively. And we're definitely seeing a crossing the chasm of more regulated entities, both institutions as well as custodians, um, you know, thinking through how might they gain, gain access to this ecosystem. Um, so in a lot of our partners as well, so just to reference again, we work with uh, seven partners globally. And these are licensed custodians, qualified custodians. We've definitely seen our conversations change as well over the last six months with more regulated entities being very interested in accessing and providing DeFi services to their to their clients. Now, um, a lot of work we do in sort of in terms of integrations for them and working with MetaMask Institutional is helping them figure out some of the things that Dale referenced earlier, which is um, how might they allow list smart contract calls? How might they allow list tokens, DAP URLs? How can they build curated DeFi experiences for, for their users, given the risk that they have to take on from a regulation perspective? And we actually work with a partner that is a very regula heavily regulated institution that has managed to figure out to offer a very sort of curated experience of DeFi. So giving their users access to, to DeFi pools, a handful of DeFi protocols in a way that sort of ticks the regulatory boxes. And we've helped them sort of think through those problems and on the engineering side as well. 
the last thing I'll say is that um, you know, risk assessment on DeFi pools is something that I think is very important. And we actually built a tool that can do this, can run pre and post compliance on DeFi pools, and then tell an entity what risk they are taking in terms of the pseudonymous counterparties within that decentralized pool. And that's something we're seeing getting sort of large usage and um, adoption from regulated custodians. And so, again, I come back to maybe to my first point and the fact that, um, you know, we are in a, in, a, in a really important innovation cycle and the tools that will allow regulated entities to move into the space are being built. They exist today. I think the, the, the struggles we have, the headwinds we have is the uncertainty with regards to regulation. And I think that still provides a, a really strong headwind for more regulated entities to understand how to interact within DeFi generally. Now, now Massimo, you have or are developing a, a service to offer clients who hold cryptocurrencies the ability to pledge them into the Ethereum network to, to earn a return for authenticating, validating transactions. So it's a relatively conservative approach. You're not looking to go into, into the DeFi area. What, what's, I mean, Conservatism is, is understandable in your case, but uh, um, it still marks something of a departure from your original model. What's what's drawn you towards doing that? Well, is uh, uh, I I think there are there are two things in play here. Is that uh, one is that we see it as a uh, as a depart more than a departure as a, as an evolution on uh, of uh, of our uh, of our initial business model and. Uh, uh, and that is, I think, uh, based on uh, on our assessment, that the opportunity, as we as just heard, is uh, is quite uh, is quite substantial. Also, there is a, a as uh, as uh, yeah. as Dylan and Johan have pointed out, there is a whole ecosystem surrounding that, and I think that uh, regulated uh, or 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 say CSD centralized. Uh, uh, FMIs have a role to play to curate and orchestrate. Um, the uh, the relationship as as I said, but also to to really be the connecting the the connecting tissue between the different elements of the of, of the uh, of the value chain. So, uh, in order to do in order to do that, uh, I think that uh, you you have to go out there and try and start doing it, uh, and 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 really start to uh, bring bring people over with you on uh, on this and uh, uh, one of the things we are doing is really uh, with with our uh, with our clients is redefine also what really the role of the of the custodian is because again there's so many it's not only the custody and the asset servicing but there are a lot more in in especially if you're bridging into or you're planning to bridge into defi there are a lot more roles that could emerge new roles that could emerge in the future uh, uh, they touched upon the uh, the uh, the liquidity pools out there how do you make this asset available in these liquidity pools in a secure way but also how do you give back to your uh, to your clients uh, 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 data on the stability of these pools so there is a massive opportunity for example uh, to work with um, uh, with analytics here and to and to help to bring out a new gener a completely new generation of analytics that can help accessing these liquidity pools, and I think that uh, the the uh, it, it feels like the the uh, the CSD is the right place where these services can start to be uh, made available, and the right place for different users to come and consume these 
these services. So what guides us is, is this belief that this is uh, going to become uh, a, 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 a much larger, a much larger uh, market, more diverse, where as Sven said, there is a, 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 lot of, uh, a lot of space for even for new entrants that we, are, we, we don't even know uh, and yet because we don't know what the problems will be. Uh, but there is uh, at the moment, uh, uh, I s- and we see more cooperation than, than competition in, in solving those problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think that by, by providing some of the elements that we are best at doing, we can, we can help. Uh, and again, it's all about adapting our, uh, our experience and, and, and reinterpreting new products on, based on the, on, on the old knowledge that we have and transforming that into new knowledge. But we see the sides of the opportunity uh, and we don't see it as a, uh, as a departure, but more as an evolution. Mm-hmm. Sven, um, we're into our last four minutes, three and a half minutes left now, and there's a couple of questions I'd like to address from the audience. But before I do, perhaps uh, some thoughts from you, uh, Sven, about it's not as if the traditional custodian banks and traditional CSTs have really leapt at this opportunity, um, either for cryptocurrency or for DeFi or indeed for security tokens. When I look at that list of 100 odd digital custodians, there's only 15 banks in it, and a lot of them are private banks. So the, the traditional industry has been quite cautious about this uh, this opportunity. What's the view at State Street about, about DeFi, bearing in mind that 97% of the defalcations of the first quarter of this year were, were DeFi protocol um, thefts? Uh, I mean, I, uh, they're very intrigued by, by this, and I think there's also a lot to learn how you could use some of the maybe more technical aspects for things like credit management, etc. But the reality is, I, I, I sometimes I think like I'm a broken record, but uh, regulation is a concern because um, we are a globally systemic important bank, a GCFE bank, there, 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 there are regulatory obligations imposed on organizations like State Street that are uh, absent from you know, more, 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 more fintech type uh, uh, driven organizations. And so um, if you look at the moment, some of the, the core aspects to DeFi, everyone can play a self-service. There's no product regulation. There's no suitability really uh, uh, criteria for these products that is somewhat at odds with traditional regulation in terms of uh, requiring a bank to determine you know whether that particular product is suitable for for a certain type of investor. So something has to give. Um, there are ongoing debates also with regulators about what has to change uh, or what are the circumstances under which uh, you would allow uh, banks to participate. But right now, DeFi is something that uh, the way it's being structured would make it very very difficult for for a a highly regulated bank to actively participate in, but uh, we're looking to find ways to do that. And for instance, staking is one of the areas that um, maybe is more confined and there are probably easier ways to, to provide services there within our framework than uh, uh, maybe more complex structures. Mm-hmm. I could just add a, a point there to Sven's comments. Yes. I think um, historically, if we look at the, uh, if we look at the, I like to see technology driving some of the regulatory decisions. Now, if the technology is not understood at its core by the regulators themselves, then it's very difficult to get that implemented. I think there's been a good job in recent years to really get up to speed and educate yourself around, you know, distributed ledger technology, staking as a service, you know, core blockchain implementation, the protocol layers, you know, all these interoperability layers. People are getting more and more of an understanding about how this space is operating. And I think that's helped. I think if you go back sort of five years, 
it was pretty minimal actually in the understanding about how how this space could actually affect the traditional custodian world. So I think that's improving all the time. And I think there's, it's clear that the big institutions are spending a lot of money by bringing in uh, teams of blockchain experts or cryptographers or otherwise, right, to bring into their mix, to add to their existing uh, pool of talent to actually, you know, help this, help this move along. And I think that's a good sign. Yeah. Well, our time is up, but I'd like to, to sort of deal with um, a, a couple of questions from the audience. One is from Syed Abdul Zilani. He says, hello, my questions in general. I'm a capital market professional from India. There aren't many discussions happening here for CBDC or tokenized securities. I see great potential for instant settlement with blockchain tech. Um, you're absolutely right about that, Said. Um, we were talking about custody today. We have talked about CBDCs in five or six previous um, webinars, which you can find on our website. We've also talked about tokenization of securities probably four or five times. All that information is on our site. Here today, our topic was really um, securities. What I like about Said is he said, what advice can you give us for someone who wants to switch his career towards digital assets? So is the answer to that, uh, Dale, to get into custody? Hmm. That's a really good question. It depends on their background, but I'd say there's a huge demand, uh, there, or there should be, in the fintechs that really don't they have a dearth of uh, TradFi experience, where you really need to pull in people who have TradFi experience, and you can bring them up the curve quickly on, on methods and mechanisms within the uh, digital asset space mm -hmm. that would help augment their career. So I think there's huge demand for people from TradFi at this point. Uh -huh. Side so is correct for me to say that he, he meant it's not being discussed in India rather than it's not being discussed generally. But um, uh, forgive me, Said, for misunderstanding your your question. Um, uh, Irving uh, Viennes asked, what impact or changes the tokenized assets have on the current settlement infrastructures involving fiat? Can you can you touch on this again? We've talked about custody rather than rather than settlement here, um, and I'm not sure what we, can, what we can add with 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 any thirty seconds to to remain. But um, uh, Dale, what would your be your advice be to to Irving? I think the the reality is now with DLTs and the mechanisms that we have with digital assets that the realities of how we handle and manage fiat will be the same, and so we'll be able to actually move quickly to instant settlement networks. I think we're seeing that already. Um, I think one of the disadvantages that the current markets have is there's a bunch of private networks that aren't linked together. And so I'd look for more and more uh, mm -hmm. mechanisms to be able to link all those private markets together to be able to provide settlement across all different sorts of asset classes, especially I would say was referred to earlier, more of the traditional illiquid ones or ones that have not been uh, had access more broadly, private equity is another one as well as real estate. Right? I think those are look for major changes there because the T plus, even T plus two is painful. Right. Let's be clear, but real estate's you know T plus thirty, T plus forty-five. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and we do see DTCC, a CSD, moving into the privately managed asset uh, space to build an infrastructure for that. So, um, we will be touching upon that in in future webinars. But I don't want to let you all go before you have at least one last um, one last say. And I'd like to go back to that question about who's going to be the winners because I'm not sure we've really we've really are answered it here. Um, the the global custodian banks, the um, the startups, the suppliers of, of technology, um, who, who do we think is going to, if, if we agree, and I think we do, that custody is going to be a very important component of the growth of the tokenized security markets in particular. We were talking about that just a second ago. Um, what, what's your view if you look five to 10 years ahead? And we can expect this market to consolidate. We can expect global custodians to actually buy some of the better um, startups. What do you think it's going to look like? Is it going to be an oligopoly like uh, like Global Custody today, where 
80% of the assets are with four large banks, or is it going to be completely different from that? I, I, I can see Dale um, uh, disagreeing with that, but I'll, I'll let you speak in a minute. Sven, what, where, what do you think the market is going to look like um, once it's gone through this chaotic phase of growth and fragmentation and consolidation? Uh, yeah, I I mean, the, the, obviously it would depend on like who's, who's having the, the, the right answer to to make sure that, um, uh, you know, the, the client base can, can grow their business in that space. I think a lot will depend on the ultimate structure. So if if you just take the, the one extreme view, all that's really going to happen is traditional market infrastructures deploys on DLT and nothing really changes, then, you know, I think uh, you may lead to one outcome that if you want a traditional both in traditional industry stays that is, or you move to the other extreme where um, you would have uh, fully permissionless networks, uh, market infrastructure in that sense don't really exist and then everything is up for grabs and you change um, the definition of what a custodian does, which is more like a network uh, orchestration service and you pull in, uh, you do the audits you mentioned already for, for smart contracts. And so with that comes the question of, is there still a banking service that is subject to Basel three rules and all of these kind of things or not? And all of that is, I think, up in the air. I think for us, it's very important that we provide maximum flexibility. I want to have optionality. If a fintech provider has a good solution available, we make it available to our clients. There's no more this thinking of it has to be built in-house in order to be successful. I think that will drive it. And that's why I'm really thinking about this in a very complementary sense, as opposed to, um, you know, one versus the other. Massimo, a year ago, our discussion was all about, you know, CSDs would be disintermediated. Um, here we are 12 months later, you're, uh, you not only have a traditional CSD, but you built a whole digital CSD, as you alluded to earlier, looking, you know, for a transition from secure, traditional securities markets to security token markets, and you expect to be able to service both parts of that of that transition. What do you think the, I don't know, the CSD industry is going to look like in five or 10 years time? Who, who is going to be the winners? Is it going to be you and DGCC and, and others who are early into this market, or is it going to be completely something completely new and different? I think that uh, it's going to be something new. And I think that uh, uh, the winners will be enablers. The enablers, as I said before, who stand between the different nodes of this network, uh, a different uh, representative nodes, whether the enablers will be us or DTCC, uh, a traditional fund, uh, a, a traditional FMI, or, or even banks who take, take that role, um, that is too soon to say. I, I wouldn't speculate on that. But I think that in terms of uh, their, uh, their, the function of their function, the winners will be the ones who are enabling, facilitating, curating, orchestrating all these processes. And they are, and, and they will have a, a, different, a, a different business model, a business model that is made of smaller little revenue touch points along all this line. They will extract rents, smaller rents, but from a lot more, um, a, a lot more specialized and, and, uh, and, uh, and confined uh, roles. For example, uh, a lot of fintechs don't want to get regulated. They look at us uh, in a way to access regulated service and provide bridges into regulated services because they don't want to become market operators regulated themselves. So that is one role that we could, we could potentially expand. And so can other exchanges. Uh, but again, whether it's going to be us or, or others, I don't know. But I, I'm fairly sure that the, the, the way they're going to look like is, as I said, someone who is there to enable processes. 
Neil, you're placing bets on what's going to work here. Is it going to be creating a business and selling it to State Street, or is it going to be extracting rents from obscure corners of the marketplace, like Massimo suggested? No, I think there's going to be multiple players. It's very difficult to say about the winners and losers, of course, for us. If we're trying to capture the life cycle management of digital assets end to end, right, we will either look to go and buy or we'll build ourselves. We we took the approach of building ourselves when we couldn't find anything that met our requirements in the market early on. But if it's something that we can have, you know, interoperability between our other uh, other components within the lifecycle management of assets, whether that's clearance and settlement, whether that's, you know, digital identity, custody, trading, you know, access to exchange connectivity to be able to get best execution on multiple venues around the world. I mean, we want to have the best solutions for our investors and families and clients. It, it Whether those... Who's the winners and losers? I don't know. We we want to back infrastructure in the space from from an investment standpoint, um, and we then want to create tools to have uh, the management of the of those assets. So digital asset management is, is is right on the forefront of our mind. So, yeah, winners and losers difficult to say. Of course, just, it's clear that the big the big institutions are 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 backing this in a big way. But um, yeah, we just build ourselves where we can't find it, but we'll buy or we'll we'll investing and or utilize or integrate. With a, with a platform if we don't have it uh, in our own uh, in our own toolkit. Dale, a, a last thought from you. You were disagreeing with me a minute ago when I forecast a, a full bank oligopoly in digital assets. Yeah, yeah. so why, I think Why that, was I wrong? So let's look at the, the market itself. Uh, and just in general, there's a whole set of assets which are not available uh, for trading in, in any reasonable form. They may be available, but they're in small private markets. Imagine a flood of all of those different assets type types, and it's going to take more than five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years or even longer for a majority of those assets to really make it in digital form and to begin trading and to begin generation of and the generation of revenue and wealth. And so it's going to be the enablers that allow those, those assets to come to a digital form that can be maintained on them, that can do reporting with those that, you know, in the case where regulation is required, that, that regulatory oversight is going to be. So there's a massive wave of new assets that are going to be available for money and investment, and that's going to drive an incredible amount of innovation and growth. Uh, not clear who the winners are going to be, except those people who are able to embrace those new assets as they're coming on and service them are definitely going to have a great revenue stream. Thanks, Dale. Last word from you, um, Johan. Um, the future is very hard to, to predict. In fact, it's impossible. Uh, but... How do you expect this to to unfold? Yeah, I think in the future, if you like, probably have two extremes: the oligopoly stage that you referenced earlier, and then um, the world of Web three. And the world of Web three is the the birth of a new internet. Uh, the financial system around that is called DeFi, and I suspect the infrastructure required to to store and manage keys will look far different. Now, the truth is probably somewhere in between those two. It's probably a combination of both. And I think I agree with the panelists that enablers is going to be very important in bridges. And that's certainly what we think very deeply about. And that's what we enable bridging into Web3. Um, and with that, I think probably, you know, we take a very agnostic approach. And I agree with Dale's statement that I think the infrastructure that will allow the enablement of this ecosystem to grow, of digital currencies to grow, you know, the, the players are going to sort of um, win in the future. Well, that's a good thought to, to end on, I think. Something that's common to all five of you is this is all about the infrastructure which enables these things to happen. Uh, we've run over, so we must stop there. 
Uh, I'd like to thank our panelists, uh, Massimo Buti from SDX, Johan Bornman from MetaMask Institutional, Sven Werner from State Street Digital, Dale Quantz from PolySign, and Neil Fillery from Shuttle Holding and Digital Asset Custody Services. I'd also like to thank you, the audience, for your questions and your comments. 